Welcome to Rocktail Hour, an hour's worth of rockin' good time in about 15 minutes with your buddies Tim, Treg, and Dave, three old guys that are a testament to the fact that rock and roll keeps you young. In each Rocktail Hour, we bring you our favorite stories behind the greatest rock and roll tunes of all time and other interesting musings about the music and the rockers who inspire us. Rocktail Hour is an affiliate of Amazon.com, so if you're going to buy stuff on Amazon anyway, it would be cool if you'd first click on the Amazon link on the Rocktail Hour homepage or affiliates page, and Amazon will kick a few bucks back to Rocktail Hour to help fund the free podcast. Today, Tim is going to bring us the story behind Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. Tim? All right, well, thanks, Dave, for the introduction. A couple of days ago, I was having a hard time deciding what what I was going to cover in a podcast in, in anticipation of, of getting together to record. And so I asked uh, somebody that I work with and they suggested sitting on the dock of the bay by Otis Redding. And I would have never thought to do a podcast on this song by myself. But as soon as he said that, I thought, man, I got to look and see if there's any kind of a good story because I love that song. And, and that is an excellent idea. And so you know, as I thought about doing a podcast on this song, I, I thought about how much I like this song. And, and, and I have to admit that the first time I really probably heard this song was from the Hires Root Beer commercial. Do you remember that uh, by yeah. any chance? No. Yeah. So there's this old geezer sitting out, you know, fishing at the end of a dock. And he's, you know, sitting. Uh, and, and I don't remember if they changed any of the other words or whatever, but, you know, the, the, the crux of it is is the old man was sitting on the dock of the bay, drinking hires, right? And so, <laughs> so to me, that's, you know, knowing how much I like this song now, it's blasphemous. But, you know, when I was a young kid... I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't equate it with, you know, totally ruining a great song by a great artist. This is one of those songs that invokes great imagery for me. When I listen to this song, I see um, somebody sitting right there and I can sort of empathize and emote with the, with him as he sings this, because it really is talking about um, some timeless themes and I can see the ships coming in and going back out and there's a lot of songs uh, that do that for me one of them is California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas mm -hmm. you know I I picture that church in my head and I'd love to know if there's really a church that they were thinking about but I pictured it in my head a hundred times and I just I can just see you know that song is so evocative to me of the of the late sixties and, and the flower power movement and hate Nashbury or whatever, you know, I know that the church yeah, is in LA, but it's, it's just, it's describing a, a piece of time that's never going to come back. And, and that's great images for me. Love that song. Uh, going to California is another one. Uh, what a beautiful song. Um, Till you get to the part where they punch the gods on the nose, and then it gets kind of silly. <laughs> We've talked about yeah, that. We Poor Plant. I mean, yeah. he had, for as good as they were in every way, some of the lyrics got yeah. a little bit. <laughs> really, guys? Come on. Yeah, but beautiful song. And, you know, you can you can see somebody traveling, you know, as, yep. as they go, you know. And um, a couple of others that work that way for me. Um, Wheel in the Sky by Journey. Love oh. that song. Uh, Strawberry Fields by the Beatles, um, Thick as a Brick is is one of those songs that I just think 
I don't know if it's because I, I remember the first time I heard it and, and it settled in stone for me or whatever, but uh, those are some of the songs that I, that I rank up there as, as really creating a mood and a feeling and, and none more so than sitting on the dock of the bay. So here's a question for you guys. That ring, brings something to mind. So Pearl Jam covered this song live, and I don't know how many years after it was done. Um, I think today you could take um, – we've talked about the monkeys on here. Um, I'm a Believer, which was written, what, four decades ago plus mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, and you could find kids today that know that song. Mm-hmm. So what is it about certain songs that tend to like – just they get burnt into our collective unconscious almost where they're just a part of who everybody is. I mean, the Beatles had a ton of them. What is it about music that allows that to happen? Oh, I think it's a, it's a lot of things with the Beatles. I think so many kids, parents have listened to the Beatles. You know, my kids know all of the Beatles songs because of all the times we've listened to it in the car or or somewhere else, just in my home. You know, I also think that there's songs that, there's certain songs that get a lot of use in movies because they they aptly create the mood for a certain time period. Right. Uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay would certainly be uh, one of those songs, um, I would think. Um, I'm a Believer is one that gets um, played in, in movies quite a bit, and especially probably children's movies. Wasn't it in Shrek? Yeah, yeah it, it was, was in, in Shrek, Shrek and uh, Smash Mouth, I think, covered right. it uh, recently, so... Yeah, current modern bands are doing these yeah. throwbacks to songs that are 40-plus years old, and I just... It's Do you know who wrote I'm a Believer? No. Neil Diamond. Ah, hmm. probably yeah. could have guessed that. As a songwriter before, he wrote a couple of the Monkey songs. He also wrote Red, Red Wine. He was the... Wow. He performed hmm. that long before you know it became a real smash hit by... Who's the reggae band? UB40. UB40, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. So... Anyway, this is one of those songs that I I just love because of the way it makes me feel and and and, and the picture it creates for me. Uh, apparently, Otis Redding was in a in a time period of some self reflection, and he had just got done uh, performing in Monterey, and he was renting a place in Sausalito that had a boathouse that was right across from the San Francisco Bay, and and so really this song is about. Otis Redding and and how he felt. Now, the interesting thing is is that uh, Otis Redding shows up one day with his partner uh, songwriter Steve Cropper, and uh, Steve Cropper says that he'd been in that boathouse and he'd been watching the ships, and he had the idea uh, of ships coming in and going out, and he says that's all Otis Redding really had, and and so he went from there and kind of took it and wrote the the words to the song. And so they recorded it on December 10th, 1967, uh, which was six weeks before it was released and three days before Otis Redding was killed in a plane crash. So Otis Redding never heard the the um, finalized version of the song. Wow. Oh, that yeah. is fascinating. I didn't know that he died in a plane crash. Yeah, died in a plane crash with his band. There was only one survivor. So this was the first song that was ever uh, a posthumous um, number one hit single on the charts. That is interesting. What is it about certain coincidences – in rock that uh, in rock and death we talked about the 27 club all these rock stars that die at age 27 and you know, all these rock stars that die in random plane crashes randy rhodes the day the music died and richie valens yeah 
um, Leonard, Skinner. Leonard Skinner. Leonard Skinner. I mean, it almost seems a little bit more than coincidental. Maybe I'm seeing more I think into it's this. Because than... they were traveling by, you know, they were the ones <laughs> that, that were traveling by plane back. Yeah, yeah. Like, duh. Well, and, and small planes. That's the thing. I yeah. think is, you yeah, know, maybe. you couldn't pay me to get in a small plane. Yeah, you know, and travel great distances. And John Denver, by the way, sorry. Another yeah, one I just thought of. Of course, small he was, plane. He was Rocky Mountain high and flying his plane. No, I'm just. <laughs> he was actually flying the plane, but yeah. I'm sure he wasn't high. That was that was distasteful, and I'm sorry because uh, John Denver is another guilty pleasure. Oh, I uh, love John. Denver. Love John Denver. Uh, his cover of Johnny Be Good. We probably talked about this. We I did. thought was incredible. Yep. But yeah, three days afterwards, um, he he passed away. Now here's the interesting thing about the song hmm. is that it was unfinished at the time that they were actually recording it. And Otis Redding sort of just um, whistled because he hadn't written the, the final verse. No and kidding. so the whistling at the end um, was redone uh, by somebody else. But, but the reason that they whistle at the end is because Otis Redding had uh, originally recorded whistling because he hadn't written the final verse. And so that's how the song ends. Now, for an iconic song like uh, Sitting on the Dock of the Bay huh. to be an unfinished piece of work and, and that whistling is, is really Great an action. interesting story yeah. um, hmm. behind, behind one of the greatest songs of all time. Steve Cropper says that most of the songs that he wrote for Otis Redding were about Otis Redding. And, you know, Otis Redding was kind of in a period of time where he was being self-reflective and this song kind of um, uh, invokes that. But I think it's an interesting song because, you know, it, obviously, clearly it was um, uh, released at the height of the Vietnam era. And um, it was really embraced uh, by the soldiers in Vietnam as, as a song that really helped them during a, a, a hard period of time. There's an article in the Huffington Post that talks about this a little bit, and I want to quote from it just a little bit. It's called The Legacy of Otis Redding's Dock of the Bay, and it was posted uh, back in 2013. It looks like it's by Don Bradley. But it says, uh, Much has been written about the song about Otis and about his tragic death. And even today there's an eerie sadness that lingers by the Dock of the Bay, which I think is true. Um, you know, when you hear the song, it's it's kind of cheerful, but at the same time, it, it really has some um, pathos, you know, uh, behind it. Agreed. So the author of the article states, My colleague and I have discovered that in the process of interviewing hundreds of Vietnam veterans, sitting on the dock of the bay continues to hold innumerable, innumerable vets in its orbit. Says obviously the song's melancholy lyrics have something to do with this, with references to leaving from the Frisco Bay, from where uh, thousands of GIs embark for Vietnam, wasting time and having ten people tell them what to do. But uh, but the lines that most resonate for Vietnam vets are these: "This loneliness won't leave me alone because I've got nothing to live for and nothing's gonna come my way." And he says, grown men still choke up when uh, they repeat those lines because in that repeating, in that remembering, they revisit the ache in their hearts, the loneliness they felt, and the despair that nearly overwhelmed them in Southeast Asia. So the author goes on to say that it was a sort of a, a soothing and, and therapeutic song that sort of uh, made people feel like somebody might actually understand them and, and be able to empathize with them. And, um, I think that's, I think that's cool. I think that music has healing powers. 
Um, and I think that music is able to to lift people's spirits and, and able to pull people out of dark places. And and you were probably a little heavy, you know, uh, for a podcast of this nature. But, you know, I think I think music um, has a lot of value above and beyond, you know, entertainment in and of itself. Well, just back hearkening back to our original question about why music has the why certain songs have the ability to kind of infuse themselves into who we are in our culture. I think a lot of it is we tend to in, inflect our personal experiences into the music and they really kind of become a part of who we are and our personal experience. So you mentioned how this song isn't really a war song per se, as I understand it, but here you have it coming out in the height of the Vietnam era and people are taking their really deep and heavy personal experiences with the Vietnam War and, you know, trajecting them onto the song and the song gets adopted into that into the culture so i think it'd be interesting if like you could do a what if scenario what if the vietnam war never happened Mm -hmm. what impact would that have had on popular music of the day i think the 60s the late 60s and even the early 70s would have been radically different musically without a lot of that going on obviously because there's so many war protest songs maybe it's kind of obvious what i'm saying but i guess i'm what i'm trying the point i'm trying to make is that people's deeply personal experiences and the music that they're listening to as they go through those end up becoming so fused together inside of them that it really just becomes literally a part of who you are and a part of your internal makeup. Sure. And and the Vietnam War probably had more of an impact than people realize because above and beyond just writing songs about the Vietnam War, it uh, influenced the mood and the feelings of the people Mm -hmm. that were writing songs. And, And regardless of the topic that you were writing about, I'm sure it influenced, um, you know, the, the themes and, and, and even some of the, uh, the emotions of the music as they went about writing it and, and, and what they were trying to convey through their music. And so I don't think you can ever disconnect the two. What if it didn't happen? Well, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe then they would have been influenced more by, you know, the deaths of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King in such a short period of time or the civil rights movement, but it was certainly a period of unrest and people weren't happy yep. uh, necessarily. And, or at least maybe happy isn't the word, but there were a lot of angry people. And, and I think, I think a lot of the music was influenced by that at the time. Right. So, Agreed. Anyway, I think it's cool that, uh, you know, that this was a song that a lot of Vietnam vets, you know, were able to, to say made them feel, I don't know if hopeful is the right word, but, 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 but made them realize they weren't all alone in the world, you know, uh, beautiful lyrics, very poetic, you know, that's the thing that I like about it. I, I'm, I like lyrics. I wasn't always, uh, the type of person that, that, uh, paid attention to lyrics. In fact, even now I'm surprised by some of the lyrics by songs that I love because lyrics were never a big thing to me. You know, I didn't really sing along with the radio and, and I was always more interested in, in the music and the way the music made me feel. But as I get older, uh, if for no other reason, I'm concerned about the lyrics because my kids are in the car when I'm listening to it now, you know, <laughs> yeah. so I probably pay a little more attention to it, but I'm surprised at what some of the uh, the music says. And, uh, so I pay attention to lyrics and these are beautiful lyrics, you know, as a, as a song itself, you know, it, it works just as a piece of poetry. And I, and I like that. I mean, there's no real story behind the song. I just think it's an interesting story that, you know, he wrote this song and, and just days later he was gone, you know, and it's such an iconic song. And I think that if you're familiar with the song, and 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 you know the time period you automatically associate it with Otis Redding 
And and that's that's a cool name anyway. I wish I was named Otis Redding. <laughs> you know, <laughs> is that but, his given name? Do you know? I don't know, but hmm. it's still a cool name. But uh, you know, it's just it's one of those. It's not. I'm. I'm not trying to say that it's a, a patriotic song, but it's a, a uniquely American song, right? Yeah. And and I don't know that all songs feel that way, but this is one of those that I think do. So you know, we we talk about some of the awards, and again, uh, it was a number one hit. It was the first uh, uh, first song that ever was hit number one after the after the performer passed away. It's also 161, which I think is very appropriate, 161 on Rolling Stone's Top 500. So anyway, that's all I got. Great. Well, thanks, Tim. That's definitely, I think I'd classify that song as an all-time classic and will be for decades to come. You can listen to a clip from Sitting on the Dock of the Bay on iTunes by clicking on the album link on the Rocktail Hour website. Uh, please email us at dudes at rocktailhour.com if you think we got it all wrong or if you have an interesting rock tale of your own, or especially if you have a recommendation of a song that you'd like to hear on Rocktail Hour. If you think we're just lame, please keep that to yourself and follow us on Facebook and Twitter and rate us on iTunes. Until the next Rocktail Hour, rock on. Rock on.